Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Alice Harbord, a PhD student at the University College London. We'll be talking about Alice's background in classics, her aesthetic experiences, or lack thereof, while working in the civil service, and her research on the value of art. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Alice, you can reach her via email at alice.harbord.19 at ucl.ac.uk, or you can read more about her research on her website www.aliceharbord.com. And, if you'd like to learn more about aesthetics, Alice has recommended the website www.aestheticsforbirds.com. Alice Harbord, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you so much for having me. So Alice, you studied classics at your undergraduate institution. What is classics for our listeners who don't know? And how did it get you into philosophy? Well, classics is lots of different things. And confusingly, depending on what institution you study it at, even in a small place like the UK, it's lots of different things. But at its core, it's study of the ancient world centering on ancient Greece and ancient Rome and the surrounding geographical areas. And it's something you can do via the language, via the literature, via the art, history, architecture, et cetera, et cetera. But where I studied it, Classics is really, it's more like a liberal arts degree focused on antiquity is kind of how I'd explain it. Because you can do as much, for example, philosophy, including modern philosophy, as you want. You could focus almost entirely on literature. You could focus almost entirely on history. The choice is yours, really. So really studying classics got me into philosophy kind of by accident, which was that I loved studying classical literature, but I often felt like I didn't really understand what I was doing when I was studying literature. And there was a course that was offered after our kind of first compulsory, there was a lot more compulsory stuff in the first couple of years. There's a course offered called Aesthetics slash Philosophy of Art or Aesthetics and the Philosophy of Criticism. And I remembered thinking to myself, that would be really, really useful. So I took it because I thought I might understand what I was doing more when I was reading all these, you know, poets that I really loved reading. And I went along and the initial reason for doing it completely dropped away. And I just had the most wonderful eight weeks with a tutor who I don't think I realised at the time quite how fantastic he was. But since my philosophical life, I've realised it was really quite a privileged start. And then I just had the bug and I took as many more philosophy courses as I was allowed I was extremely lucky that my ancient philosophy tutor, Ursula Coop, was very supportive of me doing that. And then I did, she helped me set up to do a thesis in philosophy with the most wonderful, gentle, kind supervisor who I'm still in touch with now. And yeah, that's that's how I got hooked. And how did you find that transition from classics to aesthetics? In particular, because I guess, you know, you you would imagine that the obvious transition from classics to philosophy would be to, uh, as you said, ancient philosophy. But is there maybe some synergy to be found as well between classics and aesthetics? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, for one thing, I know it seems silly to have not gone to it via Plato. And I think it, it still sometimes frustrates 
people because they're like, but you can read ancient Greek. And I mean, goodness, I'm very, very rusty now, but I still can read it. And so they're like, well, why wouldn't you want to do that? And I mean, I love Plato and I love his writing. I actually have been doing a lot on symposium recently. Mm. But I think the thing is that the real reason I wanted to study classics in the first place was to answer what I think of as broadly philosophical questions about art and its context. What you can do in classics that I think is sometimes so exciting is take an artwork that has a context that feels so alien in some ways that it's almost like it's almost like putting a foil behind a gemstone to show it up. I think sometimes the way that the cultural context of our artistic and aesthetic lives, you know, in just in day to day, we kind of can't see how the two interact so well because the context is just normal to us. It fades straight into the background. So I think that was a lot of the reason why I wanted to do classics in the first place was to understand that relationship better. And I mean, you know, philosophical aesthetics covers a whole host of really interesting questions about art and our aesthetic lives. But one of the really crucial ones is how do artworks interact with the contexts that they have? And so I think that was the most natural stepping stone, really. I think the other answer to the question, the kind of missing link, as it were, is in the jump between classics and philosophy is that actually as an undergraduate, I was engaging in like the grand tradition of undergrads actually not doing very much work. And I was spending (laughs) like a large amount of my time singing just because I went to Oxford and there's a big tradition in Oxford of like lots and lots of choirs. And so most of my like time in my life and my social life was actually just structured by Oxford student choirs. So much as although my degree program was kind of technically classics, it's a little bit more like what I did with was like classics with a heavy dose of choral music. <laughs> and so in that context, moving from classics to aesthetics made so much more sense than moving from classics to ancient philosophy, because a lot of the questions that you study in aesthetics are concerned with really weird things that music as an art form does Mm. and I was spending a lot of time facing those things every day and being you know struck and maddened by them because I absolutely loved the singing I was doing so that is another reason that's great and it really connects up well with a lot of other guests that we've had on our podcast who are inspired by literature and the arts to to study philosophy and even uh, sort of a, a classical approach i guess to, to these subjects to, to come to philosophy in the end and you're doing a phd in philosophy right now at uh, university of college london which is i think where john stuart mill went to university um if i'm not mistaken uh, which is pretty I uh, i don't yeah. know actually yeah. pretty, pretty pretty big name you might say yeah. uh, but prior to doing that you were in the civil service for a bit what was your stint in civil service like goodness what really then i think the most relevant thing to say being the civil service for me anyway was extremely frustrating <laughs> i think <laughs> the honest answer and i felt extraordinarily ungrateful because of that because on paper it's a, an amazing job you work with colleagues who were, I mean, almost to a person, some of the nicest people you could hope to meet. You work reasonable hours. You have like a pretty good, I mean, not private sector good, but come on, like decent money. You don't generally even have to sweat that long hours. I think I had, I hate to say it, but the amount of free time I had as a civil servant compared to the amount of free time I had as an undergrad, it felt like oceans and oceans of time. It's so much <laughs> pressure. And also it's a job that like loads and loads of people really, really want to do. And the has the the slightly arbitrary selection process for the job that I eventually got 
like tons of people who I think would have been so much better at it than me didn't get it and I did so I felt enormously ungrateful for the fact that actually when I got there if I'm honest with you I thought the whole thing was a kind of Orwellian nightmare (laughs) (laughs) it was this very odd experience where it felt like there were tons and tons of individuals with really good intentions but that there was something about the structure governing us which just seemed to doom them to frustration I found that very sad really and I also found it very yeah very sad I found it very frustrating in particular the way that the language that you can use is filtered it's really not a very good place to work if you as I do perhaps like to say what you think or more importantly are allowed mouth and struggle not to say what you think that's the main challenge and as well it's really not a good place if like me perhaps one of your key character flaws is a slight disregard for authority because it's a really hierarchical institution if you're kind of in the sort of lower rankings of it which of, of course you are when you arrive as you should be it means that there's Engaging with the questions that really animated me or the reasons that I'd ever considered in the first place that it would be interesting to do is really not something that's open to you. And I found that very difficult, (laughs) in particular because I was working in social policy departments. So I was working on these questions that philosophically are absolutely fascinating. I mean, I spent a long time working in the Department for Work and Pensions on disability and the long term strategy that the government should have to support disabled people. But I found it very difficult because I was working for a government that did not align very closely, or rather what I should say is like barely aligned at all with my (laughs) personal views on what they ought to be doing. You're required as a civil servant in the UK to be what they call politically neutral. And I mean, I've always thought one day I'd love to write a philosophy paper about this. There's this thing called the civil service code. And note that it's called code and not like rules. Because it kind of, I think it replicates the kind of social class structures that can make the UK such an insidious place in some ways, in that the code doesn't really explicitly state what will happen if you don't follow it, right? And it doesn't really tell you how to go about following it. But if you don't follow it, you will get in big trouble. And I mean, I never did get in big trouble because I was always too cowardly to openly not follow it. But basically, the main thing is that you're you meant to leave your own political opinions at the door when you come into the office. And the more I think about it, the more I think that might actually be impossible. Mm. And I don't just mean as a matter of psychological fact, but I actually mean as a matter of philosophical fact. In that the tasks that you are asked to do have to do with the basically the evaluation of reasons in distinctly political terms. And in particular, when you have a government where your disagreement with them is, as mine was in some cases, moral, being politically neutral then has this kind of seeping effect into really a requirement to be morally neutral, which is a very different thing, particularly when your job is really practical reasoning. (laughs) So it was like... It just made me realise increasingly that the things that so animated me and the reasons that I could have wanted to do it in the first place were to do with fascinations with philosophical attitudes to the kind of questions we were talking about. I wasn't interested in 
you know, the machinery of state. I wasn't interested in the kind of like plumbing. It's a little bit like being a plumber rather than a kind of architect. And as a civil servant, your job is to join up all of these bits of kind of institutional pipe that like don't fit that well together to get the best outcome. And I was A, really bad at it, and to B, didn't care. So unfortunately, it just wasn't a very conducive place to hang around. But on the other hand, it funded two wonderful years of fun in London. And it gave me enough time to actually sit down and apply to grad school. And for that, I'll always be grateful. Yeah. And of those questions that you said you found most interesting, obviously many of those falling into aesthetics, something that you came into towards the end of your undergraduate study, I guess one of these foundational questions that you must have been grappling with it within aesthetics is the question of, I guess, what aesthetic value is supposed to be? Or to put this another way, I mean, what what is the value of art? Is it just as its aesthetic value? And if so, what is that? And are there other kind of values that come into art as well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very complicated because the aesthetic is one of those areas where individual people disagree and are different so much and not just in terms of what they find to be aesthetically valuable or valuable as art but how valuable they find art to be individually in their lives i suppose the thing is is that there's this enormous temptation to spell out what the aesthetic is in terms of some other categories that we feel like we maybe have a more stable grip on right so a lot of people want to say something like art oh, so aesthetic hedonists for example want to say that at least something, some of the importance that we ascribe to aesthetic, there's got to be some role in the story for saying why it's important that just simply has to do with the fact that aesthetic experiences are pleasurable. And I suppose I don't think that explaining the value of the aesthetic is something we do by referring to other categories that we have a better grip on. I think the value of the aesthetic isn't because of how it reduces to any other thing. I think it's just that aesthetics experiences themselves are extraordinarily valuable. Mm. And I mean, I suppose one quick way to get at that is to think about what the moments of our lives that we experience are something like significant or profound. So most people have memories of times where suddenly things just slotted together a little bit differently for them. They suddenly realized, for example, what job they wanted to do, what degree they wanted to do, that they needed to leave a relationship, a city, a friendship, that they needed to undertake some kind of life change. It can happen, for example, when we're grieving and we suddenly understand a little bit more about the person we've lost and what they meant to us. But I think we've nearly everybody can probably conjure up some kind of experience like this where they suddenly feel a sense of significance or some people might be tempted to call it the profound And I think what's notable of experiences like that is that they almost always have an aesthetic character. So I don't just mean something like, you know, you look at a sunset and you suddenly realise that the care that some person offered you who you no longer had had a really big impact on your life. And you look at the beautiful sunset, you have the beautiful feeling and that's the aesthetic experience. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that I actually think that the experience of significance and of the profound itself has an aesthetic character. It has a feeling that you might think of as kind of revelatory or as kind of exciting or fizzy in some cases, except it doesn't need to be exciting or fizzy in the cases where what you're understanding is something very, you know, the significant understanding is something sad. It might have a hugely nostalgic character or a very bittersweet one. but 
the fact that it, we're inclined to use these terms to describe it, which are also terms we used to describe novels, plays, films, you know, I think shows that the experiences we have that matter to us most in life very frequently have an irreducibly aesthetic component. And I hope it would take far, far more philosophical work than we have time for right now to explain A, why I think that's irreducible, that needs defence. <laughs> B, why I think that means that aesthetic experiences that aren't that should have a much higher profile in our lives and deliberation, et cetera, et cetera. But hopefully that's just a quick little snapshot of a case where suddenly we haven't noticed what the aesthetic is doing in a thing in our life that is one of the most important things in our life. There's so much more to unpack there. But there's one thing I want to get at in particular, which is um, well, a, a couple of kind of words that you were using to describe this aesthetic experience. The words revelatory and the words revealing mm. as well. It's as if there's something that's being, well, revealed, as you say, to us, something that we're learning, um, something that the aesthetic experience um, gives us perhaps in an epistemic sense. Perhaps, as you say, aesthetic value might be irreducible, there's much more to say about that. But is there also some kind of epistemic value that comes into one's aesthetic experience? And is there something that can be said for that? Yeah, I mean, the majority of my PhD research is actually defending the idea that the insight that we get in art or in our experiences with art and in other aesthetic experiences too, almost certainly, is epistemically valuable in a substantial way and that art is also valuable as art in virtue of giving us insight of uh, an epistemically valuable kind. So cards on the table, yeah, I absolutely think that our aesthetic and artistic experiences can be transformative on our understanding. I suppose the more difficult question, though, is about whether that means that, as it were, part of the value we should attribute to the aesthetic is in fact epistemic. Mm. So one thing you might do is say something like this, you know, say you were trying to explain to someone why art is something we ought to have or to fund or to make time for or something. And you might say something like, oh, well, look, look at all the stuff we learn from it. And that's a reason we should have it. I slightly trip up on that line of thought. I think there's something it gets right and something it doesn't get quite right, basically. The thing I think it gets right is that it's a true fact that we learn things from art and that we learn things that are worth learning. The thing I don't think it gets right has to do with why learning makes artworks valuable in the distinctive way that artworks are so there's a lot of debate in aesthetics over whether that should value should properly be called artistic or aesthetic value so I'll stay neutral on that debate for now by just calling it value qua art mm. but what I'm talking about is the distinctive kind of value you're talking about when you say oh that was a really good book or a really good film or you know, X book was better than Y song or something like that. Essentially, I'm not sure that simply saying art is valuable as art because of its epistemic value is a complete explanation. Because there are all kinds of values that artworks have which don't contribute to their value as artworks. For example, Popularly, people think, for example, their financial value doesn't or their propaganda value, say, if they're also propaganda. So I suppose I've been doing a lot of research recently, basically, about the aesthetic character of our experiences of intellectual activity in art. So normally, 
when there are epistemic merits in artworks which are artistically valuable, they have a character a little bit like the experiences I was talking about earlier. So that doesn't, they don't necessarily need to be revelatory as such. It might not be an experience of significance. It might not be even a pleasurable experience, but there's a kind of a sense of something, of learning something that matters rather than just merely learning, say, the fact that, I don't know, Baker Street is in London while really reading Sherlock Holmes or something like that. And I just think that part of how we explain the kind of epistemic merits in artworks that are artistically valuable, part of how we distinguish those from the ones that don't matter so much has to be according to the aesthetic value that those epistemic merits grant us in artworks. There's a kind of phenomenal and aesthetic character which we get from thinking about, for example, I don't know, so Aaron Dati Roy's book, The Gods of Small Things, for example, there's a particular kind of phenomenology and aesthetic character to thinking about the ways that a society based on exclusion and the denial of personhood to some people can have a kind of tragic repercussions on the personal level that no one could ever have imagined, for example, that we just don't get (laughs) when we learn, for example, that Baker Street is in London from reading Sherlock Holmes or something like that. And I think essentially explaining why the former seems to really matter to the value of art and the latter doesn't is going to have to go via explaining why the former is valuable in some aesthetic ways and the latter isn't. Alice, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.